0: I'm excited today to bring you, uh, I think, a pretty fun conversation because when we were in Stockholm in the spring working on global issues, I had the honor and the privilege of, of working with a number of people from around the world, one of whom is Saji Prellis, who's the director for children and youth programs at the Search for Common Ground. Now, he's going to explain what that means, but it supports programs in over 30 countries. And he's also extremely active in the UN civil society interagency work being done on youth participation in peace building as, as well co-chair of the Global Partnership for Children and Youth Participation in Peace Building for Societal Transformation. That's a mouthful. So we're gonna take some time to take break break it open and take a look at what that means. This is Donna Jones, it's the Insight to Action podcast and my work is both leadership and decision making for transformative leadership and transformative decision making for local personal to global change the whole the whole spectrum there and it's very much around finding new and creative ways to rebring ourselves back online as well as as transform some societal issues not the least of which is what what where the future is for for young people in the world today. So, Saji, excited to chat with you.
1: Likewise, thank you, Donna.
0: One of the rare moments when we're actually not 10 or 12 hours time zones away. So, so this is cool. Saji, tell us more about what the uh, Common Ground program that you're doing is and and what it means to youth worldwide.
1: Yes, thank you, Donna, and thank you so much for having me. It's really a great pleasure to talk with you today. Let me give you a little bit of background to Search for Common Ground, but before I do that, I think it'll be good to put, to introduce myself a little more to put what I'm saying into more context. I'm originally from Sri Lanka. I grew up in Sri Lanka half of my life, and half of my life outside this, outside of Sri Lanka. There were two things I would summarize as very formative, three things that were formative in my life. One was growing up in a situation of conflict and distrust among people and violence. The second is growing up in a family that instilled in me values that I still practice in my life. Three is seeing the good and ugly side of human nature unfolding in front of me and perplexed on why we focus on the ugly side as opposed to the good side. And those were the, the groundings that I had growing up in Sri Lanka. Those three influences is what have put me on a journey of discovery and engagement in very authentic ways with people around the world. So with that background, I've you know, is what I want to introduce you to the work I'm doing with, uh, with an organization called Search for Common Ground, which is one of the world's largest and uh, oldest peace-building conflict transformation organizations. Now we are in our 35th year. Uh, A lot of the work we do in in over 35 countries around the world is bringing societies, communities together who are across various dividing lines to actually discover the commonality that they have as opposed to the divisions that rip them apart. We do that through multiple ways, through media as well as face-to-face conversations. Face-to-face conversations working in communities is critical But the challenge we really see is that these are not unique to a few hundred people. The differences, the grievances people face are not unique to a few hundred people. These are faced at a societal level across various conflict geographies. When we use media is to make sure that people at a societal level see that there are constructive ways to address grievances. While the 200 people are engaged, when it's amplified using media, Millions of people can feel like they're part of a process of understanding how grievances can be constructively addressed. So that's a lot of that's what Search for Common Ground
0: does. And to to add to that for me, you know, I think one of the things that I appreciated when we were putting together our proposal for the Global uh, Challenges Foundation in June of this year for working with youth worldwide, particularly in conflict areas, you sent along some videos of uh work that was coming out of Rwanda which I was really excited about because my daughter had gone to Rwanda to teach soccer in 2008 and and of course <laughs> I didn't it didn't even clue in that it's now well well 10 years later essentially and and here's these young people who are starting up radio programs and I mean can, can give us a few examples if you will of what what's going on, on the ground so people can feel this from a more visceral level
1: sure to put that into context, uh, let me explain why young people. SEARCH works with a lot of a lot of local partners across many countries and work on a number of different issues. But I want to explain why working with young people is a specialized in importance. Why young people, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, which is the youngest continent in the world, in some of the countries we work in, for example, in Nigeria, the median age in Niger is 14. 14 years is the median age in West Africa. In East Africa, it's 18 to 19 years of age, almost 20 in some countries is the median age. So if a, if you're looking at a society where the median age is 14 to 20 or less, right? you're looking at a significantly young population. So that's, there's a demographic reality we need to understand and embrace. Second is... That A lot of the research is pointing out that most young people around the world are experiencing a violence of exclusion, meaning they are not being included in public conversations, in public debates that matter to their daily life, decision makings that affect their daily life. And this is what violent groups are very good at doing is capitalizing on the weaknesses or failures of our social contracts and using it to propagate their political agendas. So when it comes to these issues, young people face these on a daily basis, and that's why we tend to work on this. The third piece of is why, why young people is important to recognize is that for many years, young people have been perceived as victims of conflict and violence and displacement, or as perpetrators of violence and conflict. But numerically, while those might be true, the numerically, they are not factual. It's only a small group of people who actually are committing violence in a society. Vast majority of them choose not to commit violence, but the attention is only given to the smaller group of them that's committing violence and neglecting the voices of the majority who are not choosing not
0: to. You know, that's probably a reflection of our brain science. Uh, David Rock reports that we've got far more real estate in our brain dedicated to the negative <laughs> over the positive.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. But we're around the world, there are so many young people, amazing heroes and heroes who are doing amazing work and sacrifices at, at the cost of even risks to their daily lives, from death threats to starvation to issues that they're experiencing because of the violence they see or the hunger they see, experience. despite all that, they are doing some amazing work. I can give you two very quick examples. One is a young man from Cameroon who was being recruited into violent groups in the past. And he went went down this ugly road and realized that that's not the path for him, and he left it. And now he's becoming one of the biggest champions around in Cameroon and in sub-Saharan Africa on getting young people away from violence. He's working in prisons in Cameroon. Prisoners who have been young prisoners who were arrested under terrorism laws. Now he's actually engaging them and humanizing them in a way that sees them with dignity. Sees them with a sense of identity. And enables them to be empowered so that when they are in the prisons, their life is of less violence. And enables them to see a path out in a more human way. This is a young man of 20-something years of age.
0: Wow, that's just... Shining light courage for me, from my point of view.
1: Absolutely. And there's young women in Pakistan, in the northwest frontier of Pakistan, who are doing courageous work with death threats on them and still educating young boys and young girls around the importance of respect, the importance of diversity of thought, understanding how to address constructively the differences they're seeing. And yet, we are not paying attention to these stories or these experiences. You know, and that's the challenge that we have as a society is how do we connect to our humanity? That battle for humanity that we are, it, it is so needed right now is something we neglect, especially in a world where we are experiencing a crisis of leadership, crisis of governance and a failure of leadership to respond to the needs of a population that is crying for leadership. Battle for humanity is something that we need to, all of us need to be embracing uh, before we fracture ourselves into pieces and become fragmented enough that we will be enabling people to cause more harm than good.
0: Yeah, well said. Absolutely. Uh, and I'm not, no, you, you know, you mentioned battle for humanity. When we were in Stockholm, we talked about some of the, youth-centered alternatives for or youth-centered platforms, if you will, for cooperation and, and for shifting the focus toward a more constructive approach. Tell us a teeny bit about Battle for Humanity. You know that I'll be reaching out to the coordinator for that and, and having a conversation on a podcast episode on that, but but just give us a feel for it if you don't mind.
1: So, uh, I mean, Battle for Humanities was an idea that was generated by two young women who were really enthralled by this idea of how do you get societies to meet and move societies themselves? How can people get together and move move societies in a collective way? And understanding that technology enables people to come together and that can be used as a tool to get take action, that is online and offline, is a powerful inspiration. And they've developed a platform and, and tools to get young people to engage to come together, recognize the humanity that exists among them, organize around these common interests, and take action in their own communities, online and offline. And it's a fantastic example of people taking steps to address issues that are important to them in their own ways, using technology as a tool for that. And I'm really glad that you're taking the time to speak with uh, the main coordinator, Jessica, who came up with the concept to understand that more, because I think tools like that, are important for people to learn about and to engage on this because of the point that you mentioned, it's easier to capture what's negatively happening in society than the good things that are happening. And this is a shining light of what's really good that is happening at a societal level across many countries that needs more amplification. So I appreciate you making the time to talk to them.
0: No, thank you. No, I'm looking. I'm looking forward to it when we were in stockholm one of the numbers that i was intrigued by is the number of youth young people that are living in conflict torn areas and and just just what that says because we've got so much pushback on immigration on migration and and yet no empathy for what's going on in these countries and and just, it's almost like people if they're in a, in a place of of comfort uh they're more fearful than a life waste than the people that are dealing with it face on. So tell us a bit about the, you know, first of all, the statistics, if, if you know, of how many youth are living in that and, and what that means in terms of our, our species as a whole, if you, if you know not I know that's a big question, but let's play with it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> sure. I can give you some, a little bit of the numbers that we know of right now. In 2016, an estimated 408 million young people, primarily aged between 15 and 29, are recognized as living in settings of affected by armed conflict or organized violence. This, this kind of means that at least one in four young people is affected by violence or armed conflict in some way today.
0: Now, you're excluding in that number, Saji, Are you not excluding, you know, domestic violence and all that stuff? This is just like armed yes. conflict, territorial issues and all of that, right?
1: Absolutely. absolutely. So you can imagine that becoming much bigger,
0: right? Yeah.
1: And it's estimated that in direct conflict deaths, in for example, in 2015, that more than 90% of all casualties involve young men. Say that again. So in 2015... Estimated direct conflict deaths in 2015 suggested that more than 90% of all casualties involved young males. Right. This is important to recognize because oftentimes we see that in conflict situations, we hear that women and young girls are the victims of conflict, and which is so important to recognize and do more work with. But it's equally important to recognize that young men and young boys are directly impacted by armed conflict and violence also.
0: Do we have any insight into why that is, Saji?
1: I think it goes back to how men are socialized, how young men and boys are socialized, how what it means to be a man in society.
0: Warrior stage, the, the uh, proving oneself. Exactly. Yeah. Rites of passage, that's the term I was looking for, rites of passage.
1: Absolutely, and in social, and to be a man in society requires that it's stereotypically you have to be strong, you have to be important, important, you have to, and that strong means almost using tools that are violent in nature. But we never equate a man, a man to be strong who is also emotional and has empathy. Right? right. I think mean, that's a disconnect that we have in our society. Yeah. So what if if you change that calculus to be a hero Or today for men? You have to be empathetic. You have to be able to listen, not just talk. Men tend to talk much more in meetings than women and in meetings, for example. And a lot of meetings I'm at, oftentimes men talk way more than women are given the space to talk or even listen to women. Even. So what if being a man and being a hero is about listening as opposed to just talking or responding? These types of societal norms are what it takes for our 21st century type of leadership. So when you talk about violence and conflict in society, we're looking at, you know, when one in four people around the world are affected by, we are in a crisis situation that we need to address.
0: Well, yes, and you know going back to what we were talking about just before we I pushed record on this button was was just the whole business of going deeper in, as a species you in, in our human inner interactions because we're awfully tempted to go to the the app and just use the app to meditate well use the app to connect and communicate and but we 're not actually connecting we're not um you know a great book by by johan. Hari, uh, called Lost Connections that I'm using for this VR project I'm working on, which is about the nine ways that we are not connected to one another or to ourselves. So so I think that we've got a huge opportunity to go much deeper and use much more intelligence than we're currently applying.
1: I think the more we are connected using technology, the more disconnected we are.
0: Yeah,
1: absolutely. And the more more disconnected we are from each other. And we see there's so much studies now coming out. When you see in a restaurant, people are sitting around talking. In the back in the day, people were talking to each other. Now people are actually on their phones, sitting next to each other, having conversations or doing something, you know, away from the group that they're with. So that means that we are disconnecting the more we are connected. And I think that's, that's a big challenge for us because if we are not understanding... At a human level, how to have conversations with each other face to face? Then we are in a crisis mode. But what that yields is our inability to have relationships with each other, our inability to address big problems because we are thinking a technology can solve it. When what what technology does is enslaves us to depend on it and enables us to not use our own inherent thinking skills and our tech, our capacities to think and act are being diminished because we're relying on technology itself. And that becomes a bigger challenge for us.
0: Well, absolutely. But the way out is, 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 uh, I think, exciting at the same time because one of the things that I watch happen is when people (laughs) pick up their devices. First of all, they're completely unaware of what they're doing they're also unaware that they're isolating uh, people around them when they do that. And I've actually seen, you know, situations where a young child four four years old was being completely ignored by both parents who were on their devices and neither parent was aware that they weren't present at all. And so, and yet, then the other hand on this elsewhere on the podcast, I have an interview with Michael mole who's originally from Uganda who moved, no, sorry, originally from Kenya and who started a gardening app, and what he's learned from that gardening app is that it puts people in touch with one another. So now neighbors are getting together. So I think it's, you know, it's not, is technology good or bad? It's how we use it and what's our relationship with it. And I think we've we've got a massive opportunity to work with that. If I look at Battle for Humanity, Battle for Humanity is a great way to capture people who are already online and galvanize them toward getting stuff done offline. So I think I think we just have to be more mindful and more conscious about how we use these tools to interact and to connect. And it, and I mean, you know, right now for me, if I didn't have tech, I would be so isolated because my entire community is global. You know, the the community that we do this work with is global. And and so I would be super isolated without the tech. So again, I think it's really just um, making sure that we understand how we're using it, being clear about that, being aware of it. And that's, that's the deeper work that people are trying to dance around if they can.
1: Absolutely, I can't agree with you more. I think there are tremendous advancements and benefits to humanity because of technology. I think it's how we u- treat technology and how we use technology is, is is the decision points that i'm talking about right because it it, it has brought the like people together it has helped save lives it has helped uh, uh, in the hospitals as well as in the field in the battlefields technology has helped save lives so it is it's amazing. it's important to recognize that but it's more, equally important to recognize that how technology can be better used to, to not depend on technology also to solve some of our problems I think that's that's also a critical question to be asked because it enables us to think for ourselves what needs to happen.
0: Tell us more about the programs you're you're working with that where you're seeing stories come out of them that are as you've mentioned a few already that are super inspiring. What inspires you and in your work, and 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 what are the programs that you have you know sort of your your favorite programs because they're they're having transformative effects.
1: Sure, I, I mean there are millions and millions of stories like this and I wish there were more ways that we can amplify these stories because it's these are the heroes and heroes who are doing this courageous work. I mentioned earlier from Cameroon to Pakistan, some of the work that we are doing is at the government level and some of the other work that is being done as, as a grassroots level. And I think they're both important. At the global level, when what we were doing was creating a set of policy norms on how young people can be perceived. Back in 2010 and 11, when we approached governments at the UN level to see young people as partners, they were laughing at us because they, they see young people as victims or troublemakers only.
0: Wow, that's just scary because young people bring so much creative talent to the equation. I, it's, hard to, it's hard to fathom that.
1: Absolutely. That was in 2010. But in 2015, Security Council unanimously adopted these are member states unanimously adopted resolution 2250 that sees that calls governments to engage young people as partners. And then in 2018, in April, when we launched the progress study on the research uh, on how young people are positively contributing to society, there were not only at, at the Security Council, 75 member states wanted to speak. And spoke positively about how they're trying to do that in their countries. So you go from 2010 with people at the Security Council saying we are not interested in youth issues, we're interested in serious security issues, to a shift in consciousness of how young people can be a benefit to society.
0: Well, and then actually the, the PowerPoint for, you know, not the PowerPoint as in the PowerPoint software, I mean the power, the place of power for, for shifting. You know, youth for security. I mean, that that's that's the funny little flip in the mindset perspective is that instead of seeing as isolated, seeing them as completely related, and and youth being the um, the initiator. So,
1: absolutely. So these things are important to recognize at the policy level, and governments are doing that. And how is that relevant then at the grassroots level? We see in the Congo examples where we work with in remote villages in the Congo where we are trying to transform the perceptions of the enemy to a protector mentality, transforming the concept of a so-called enemy to being a protector. What that means is when when the Congolese army are perceived by community as, as perpetrators of crimes against women, for example, what we're trying to do is getting young people that work work young women and young men to work with the army officers. To see each other as the protectors of society, because people see the army as the perpetrator. Army sees the communities, as young community, young men as the perpetrators. But how do you transform the perpetrator of each other to a protector mentality? So in Congo we are do- doing that. In Nepal we are doing that. In the, in Nigeria we are doing that. In in the northern part of Nigeria where violence and violent extremists have ripped the fabric off of society, we are getting young young people to come together to see each other as humans and peers and enable them to help each other remove themselves from violent situations and address the grievances that they're facing in constructive ways. This is a young women and young men that are doing that. There's a great video that I shared with you about a young girl, young woman named Janet, who, when she saw how Christian Muslim violence is ripping the fabric off, she and her friend Fatima were able to Understand that they, despite the religious differences they had, they had a lot more in common. That they pray together, they have similar ways of seeing each other's families, respecting each other's community, and they, despite the violence that they've seen, they were able to convince their families and their friends to come together to understand what they have in common. These are two young women in, in a country that is historical non violence. These are two shiros who are coming together and saying we have a different narrative and a new story to tell, and are really making strides in the, nor- in, in the North itself. And I think that the, that the importance here is how do we then amplify these stories even more? And platforms that enable this amplification and what you're trying to do is bring life to these stories is, all, is so critical because that's how then we can normalize how the innate capacities we have to do good.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and and I think that we have to start capturing these stories because the focus that people are centered on is, is all of the unethical decisions that are being made and, and the actually, you know, reversing of so much that actually supports us globally, you know, nationally, globally, globally, so yeah, we've got to be able to capture these stories. I know this was a conversation that my colleague Thomas Ely and I had when we submitted the idea for a global connect network that we talked about in in Stockholm as well. The idea where we could put all these things on one place and, and, um, and share them. And then that would help people.
1: Just to highlight also, there's another program called Solia that we have as an organization we do. And what, what Solia does is it get it. It's a platform. It's the largest exchange platform now uh, that exists where young people in the U S in the West, are having conversations, dialogues with young people in the in the Middle East, for example, on topics of the, what, the, what the hijab means, drone attacks, what that means in countries, from a security and a human perspective. And here are young people online talking about really difficult topics.
0: I love it. That's fantastic.
1: It's exchanges, it's not only humanizing each other, but also deeply understanding what drives people to make decisions. And there's a lot of brain science research that's also been done on, with the participants of these exchanges to understand what changes their behavior. And it's, it's a fantastic example of how technology can be used for good and humanize each other.
0: Yeah, exa- exactly. Very good example of that. Thanks for putting that in, adding that in you uh, where can people find out more about this, inf- this kind of projects and these kinds of initiatives?
1: Uh, if they can go to www.sfcg.org, so okay. search for common ground, sfcg.org. There's a ton of resources. Search is an open source organization, so what we do, the lessons we are learning, the mistakes we are making is available in our evaluation. These are all, all publicly available. And uh, and something we have practiced from our, in our founding days is that we need to embrace failure openly. And a a lot of our evaluations have that, and we share that, and and we also share what we are learning and what we are doing with the mistakes we are making. We as peace builders, if we embrace failure as an opportunity to correct, that enables people to think differently about how we engage each other. Search is one example of that, of sharing, creating an organizational culture of learning and practice and being open about these failures and successes, I think it creates an organizational culture that provides a leadership for the rest of the world also to see how we can learn from each other and not hide behind failure, but embrace failure as a, as a turning point for accountability to people that we are serving. So I welcome the opportunity to you know, exchange more with people on, on these issues, because if, if that's how these kinds of conversations enable people to see each other differently and they learn from each other.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I've always seen failure as being the failure to learn, because if you haven't actually taken a an epic fail, and I've had plenty of them, <laughs> and sort of said, okay, what's the learning in this? That's where the real transformation takes place. That's where it moves from a you know, feeling bad about it to a an understanding and the capacity to work that information going forward. So, yeah. And is SOLIS also on the site?
1: SOLIA is also on the site. So it's S-O-L-I-Y-A, SOLIA. If you Google it, goes SOLIA Exchanges, you can find the link to that as well. Uh, Donna, I just want to point out, when it comes to failure, I can give you a concrete example of this. We were doing a research initiative in West Africa between three countries. We had... Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea. And what we were looking for is understanding the worst forms of violence against children. So when we talk about worst forms of violence against children, we think of them as children being the victims of worst forms of violence. This is all about female genital mutilation, early child marriage, and child labor, and all that. So what we did was, first did a research project. What we did was flip the idea of what violence, worst forms of violence mean. So instead of seeing children and young people as victims of violence, how can we become the agents to transform that mentality? So we got young people who research first with their peers what worst forms of violence means. And one of the key findings that came out of that research, when a lot of scholars have talked about female genital mutilation, early child marriage, and child labor as important forms of violence to be addressed, what young people discovered by talking to them each other is that hunger is a bigger form of violence than anything else hunger leads to child marriage hunger leads to sacrificing self but nobody had identified hunger as a critical thing
0: this is exactly what i refer to as as a reference or as a leverage point when you solve one problem then you you leverage solutions everywhere
1: absolutely but in the process of doing this work, and then we created radio programming, socializing things so so that taboo subjects, if they are talked about in public discourse, then you remove the taboo around it. So we did lots of social processes, in, including on the radio, around these issues. One of the failures we had was we neglected to recognize the how we are, when, when young people are engaged in research, that they can become victims of that research also what we realized if it was a person who was doing the evaluation for us who realized that some of the people who we were using as researchers were experiencing re-experiencing violence wow and that enabled we, did, we took that for granted and we neglected to realize it till the evaluator caught it and that enabled us to make sure that we address the psychosocial dimensions within re- when we talk to engage young people as pa- partners in a process around violence issues, we need to also mitigate the re-exposure to violence. And it really opened the door for us to think critically about how does that fit into a programming cycle? How do we budget for that? And how do we engage to ensure that while, we impo- while it's important to get young people as partners and as agents, it's important to minimize the risk and violence that they can re- re-experience. So it was a really big really experience for us.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, and I, I certainly, from my point of view, lately anyway, I've been looking at or being asked to go and help a lot of indigenous con- communities who are looking at recovering their spirit and recovering from a lot of less overt violence, although sometimes it's not so overt, but you know, the violence of suicide, the violence of depression the violence of of abuse of all name it of all sorts and 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 so it's so much around you know revitalizing expression and revitalizing so it's it's, it's what i'm saying is it mitigating risk but also in the process you can if you design it properly it, you can you can build in transformational elements into the process with uh, rather than exposing and amplifying the pain be able to convert it into something more useful. So that's something I'm looking forward or hoping to have the opportunity to, to experiment with in, in, um, in a couple of places. So we'll see what happens with that.
1: Fantastic.
0: Yeah, because we understand, you know, we understand what it takes to, well, you know, from my point of view, we understand what it takes to do that kind of reignite, you know, reignite and then shift. Uh, And now it's just a matter then of setting the conditions for it to happen along with the tools and the opportunity and the invite. So,
1: yeah, uh, and the, the other piece on that is then amplifying, magnifying, and amplifying it so that more people understand it, so that they, more people feel that there are there are solutions. Yeah, that are that were not tapped before, right? So that then you're amplifying the positive, but you're also like giving a whole society to realize that there are new ways to understand these complex, perplexing issues,
0: and new ways to work with them. You know, ways to work with them that are much less intense. They're going through intense issues, but you're using the element of play, you're using, without making light of things, that's, you know, not to be confused with that, but, but, you know, you're using the element of play. Some of the more natural things that, that help people gain some perspective and some distance from pain so that you can actually uh, convert it into something more useful, so. All right, Saji, thank you very much for being on the episode. Is there anything we should be talking about that we haven't? Anything we want to throw, anything you'd like to toss in?
1: I, think, I mean, we've been talking about a lot of wonderful topics of, uh, because it's we're talking about people, you know, and what push and pull people to do good and bad things and crazy things. And, and I think at the heart of it is that one of the biggest challenges the world is facing is one is a crisis of leadership, crisis of governance. But how our ability to address the grievances, the conflicts that we have in our life, the ability to understand and address them in constructive ways, I think the time is now to do that.
0: I couldn't agree with you more.
1: Instead of focusing on the negative, we have to look at how to address it. I mean, the work, the name, Search for Common Ground, is about a discovery of what we have in common. Right? It's time in this, in this fractured world for all of us to search for common ground as opposed to search for our differences.
0: All right. Well, thank you, Saji, for joining me today on the program. It was a great fun chatting with you. I know we could go on for a while so because it's it's so interesting and there's so many opportunities here for people to contribute. One of the things that bothers me, I have to say, when I'm listening to people is they will say, well, look at all the... This is with respect to the topic of leadership. They'll say, you know, look at all these bad things that are happening in the world, and why don't they do something about it? And 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 what what's they're trying to put us down, or you know, eliminate the population, or any one of a number of possible theories. And and I, it's this they thing, you know, and it, it's it, And I at the same time on the episode elsewhere on this episode, I've talked about my experience of being homeless for nine years, and you know, the amount of pressure to conform uh, was huge. Around you know just do anything it takes to survive and and uh, you know whatever you do don't you know follow the norm fit into mainstream and and that's where I think the biggest blocks to leadership exist if you know leaders mean doing things differently it means taking that those bold steps it means a whole lot more than we are currently giving it credit for it's not about telling what somebody else what to do. It's so I think we've got to reframe our definition of what leadership looks like in tr- just through practice, just through doing it. And, and a lot of these young people are certainly doing that.
1: There's two things in this. One is, I think, around, around leadership is we need to reflect back on what legacy are we leaving behind 30 years from now? What would the history books talk about of our leaders of today, what we are doing? Do you want to be remembered as a, as a person who turned the tide? Or are you going to be remembered as someone who fit the norm of the time? When we think about people we, we admire the most, we, we admire the people who have turned the tide. I think it's important to re, refocus on that. And at the same time, the second point is around leadership: is that it's a collective effort. We we need each other because the problems are so big that, and complex that one person cannot solve themselves. We need all, all people of all types working together across this dividing line to do that. That's when solutions become complex and at the same time more simple because then it's a shared responsibility, shared ownership, and a shared way of addressing this. It's a collective action for collective good. Collaborative and collective action for collective impact, collective good, is I think that new norm that we need to be shifting towards as opposed to this top-down way of depending on people to solve your own problems.
0: Well said. I don't think I could come up with a better conclusion than that. Thank you very much, Saji. Thank you. Great to chat with you.
1: And thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. It was really good to connect with you.
0: Likewise, likewise. Well, I know we're going to get up to something no good at some point uh, in terms of uh, moving some of these ideas uh, even more forward. So thanks again, and we'll look forward to uh, having our next conversation, which we probably, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens next.
1: Absolutely. Looking forward to it, Donna. Thank you so much. Likewise. Thank you. All the best. It's good to be good, causing good trouble together.
0: So here's to you causing good trouble together. And by that, I mean disrupting some of these assumptions people make about other people, other groups of people who are different from them, breaking up some of these patterns of bias that are ingrained with being human. They're not good or bad, but they are problematic when it comes to us working together collectively in the battle for humanity. I do hope my next podcast will be with the program leader for the creative lead for battle for humanity. But meanwhile, between now and then, I ask you to reach out wherever you can to a young person and to sit down and have a conversation about what's going on in their world for them. And better still, keep your mouth shut, just listen, (laughs) because that is the highest form the highest way in which you can honor someone. I hope that's not too direct, but i afraid that's my style. Nevertheless, I do thank you for joining and for listening, and if you found this resonates with you, and if you found these stories in, in this program inspiring, I ask you to share. Thank you very much. You're listening to Donna Jones from insighttoaction.com, E-P-D-A-W-N-A underscore Jones on Twitter, and on Facebook from Insight to Action. I'm also on Instagram, but I haven't figured out how to use it yet. Still got my training wheels. And recent co-author of From in- From Hierarchy to High Performance, which will be doing a workshop in San Francisco coming up in November. So looking forward to that. To me, for speaking, for workshops, for more conscious decision making, for using adversity to flip how you see things so you can use it more effectively and really work with it in a way that That widens your perception of yourself and also your consciousness for greater peace and ease in the chaos of the world today.